welcome to Educationally Sound, a podcast by Teacher Learning Network. My name is Amy Cotton and I'm your host this week. In this podcast, we're keen to hear the stories of those working in education. Over the weeks, we'll hear from teachers and support staff around Australia. Education is the key to social change and we wanted to find out how everyone who has dedicated their life to serving the future is going about their job. This means we'll be talking to those enacting widespread change at policy level, to those organising and volunteering at local levels, and most importantly, to those at the very front line of teaching. Today we're focusing on New South Wales, which for our foreign listeners is an eastern state of Australia. Its capital city is Sydney. New South Wales has a single teacher registration body for all early childhood, primary and secondary teachers and it is mandatory for all teachers to obtain approved teaching qualifications, no matter which sector they work in, that is government, community, private, independent, or Catholic. In order to stay in the profession, teachers must reach the status of proficient accreditation and then maintain that for the rest of their career through professional development activities and teaching practice against the Australian professional standards for teachers. For those from interstate, proficient accreditation is the same as full registration. Today's guest is Judith Page. For the sake of full disclosure, Judith and I worked together at the New South Wales Institute of Teachers, which has since been subsumed into BOSTES and now the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, or NESA, as is the way of amalgamating government departments over time. At the time of recording, however, we're no longer employed by the same body. I'm going to let Judith describe her broad role in her own words. I'm the Director of Teacher Accreditation at New South Wales Education Standards Authority, called NESA for short, and my role is to ensure that every teacher in New South Wales is accredited before they can start teaching. That's the prime part of my role. I also have other associated parts of that role, one of which is to make sure that teachers pass these to ensure they are accredited and that any teacher who is found to be subject to misconduct, um, also has their accreditation suspended or revoked. So I have an operational role. I also have a policy role in that we, in my area, develop quite a bit of policy to support the ongoing role of a teacher accreditation in New South Wales. That's uh, quite the brief that you've got there. (laughs) (laughs) Very broad. Uh, okay, well, I, I, th- I think um, one of the great places to start is always to talk about what are you doing that makes you proud? So what gets you up going in the morning? So I think I had to think about this question and I think what makes me proud is the work that we've done in New South Wales and that I've played a role in to implement a proper system of professional recognition for teachers in New South Wales. All the, the key to um, a profession being recognised in the community as a high status profession, I think, is to have the sort of structure that we've established for teachers in New South Wales. So you've got entry benchmarks into the profession. You've got clear standards of practice that teachers have to meet in order to remain members of the profession and you've got ways that members of the profession are required uh, leave the profession. So ways to suspend or revoke teachers because they no longer fail to meet the expectations of the profession. And we've worked now 
uh, for 12 years on implementing this system. And I think that's what makes me proudest, that we have actually established this system now. Um, and we've last year we've brought in early childhood teachers, so we've extended it even more. And I see that as being uh, key to ensuring that the status of teachers is raised in the community. I think it was... Um... Especially wonderful moment when you, um, Nessa, did actually manage to accredit early childhood teachers the same as all the other teachers, yes. um, which is one yes. of the few states to do that. Yes, that's right. We were very keen not to put teachers on a different register. I understand why other states and territories have done that, but it, it's not something that I think was the way to go because teachers are teachers and there is a qualification benchmark. It may be that at this stage we've got a lot of early childhood teachers who have bachelors of teaching uh, rather than a four-year bachelor of education. However, that will change over time. And I think that's what we've found with the implementation of teacher accreditation over 12 years. We, when we first started, there was we had no qualification benchmark in New South Wales for teachers, no agreed qualification benchmark for teachers. There certainly was in government schools, but there wasn't in the non-gov sector. And so we've been able to implement that common benchmark over the years, and I think the same with early childhood. So we've also, one of the things that made me proud was the fact that we were able to establish a, a policy that supported early childhood teachers to meet those standards of practice. Their workplace structure is totally different to the workplace of primary and secondary teachers. And it was important that we didn't um, implement a system that wasn't accessible to them. So we, we worked very hard to ensure that the structure for early childhood teachers was going to enable them to meet the same standards of practice that all teachers meet in New South Wales. So you've implemented, you've got the qualification benchmarks in, you're still working on um, the implementation of early childhood sphere, which Yep, totally, work in progress. What's another thing that you're working on in the future? Okay, so there's probably the biggest thing we're working on at the moment is developing a revocation and suspension policy, which is bad news for teachers. But you can't have a proper registration system. You can't have a pro proper professional body, let me use that term rather than registration, when you don't have the profession determining who is able to continue in to continue to practice in that profession. And even though this is not an area that is, is a particularly fashionable one or one that we want to talk about because we want good news stories about teachers, there are bad news stories and the, it's really important that the profession has a say in whether or not those people are able to remain practicing. So we haven't had that. We haven't had a transparent and consistent process for teachers in New South Wales. So certainly employers can make decisions about whether or not they continue to employ a teacher. But if when it comes to the person's accreditation, we want to make sure that there is clarity in the reasons that somebody can stop practicing or be required to stop practicing in the teaching profession in New South Wales. That's a highly complex policy and it has a lot of um, interactions between employment law and uh, 
our, the Act that we work under. So it's a challenging policy to get right, but it's a very important one. So that's what we're working on at the moment that I think will make a big difference and sort of, I think it'll complete our accreditation systems. The importance of a document like that, it, you use the word transparent, it's actually having rules that are yeah. set down that everybody can see and everybody can that's follow, right. uh, whereas um, until that's actually established, it's very much, a, oh, we don't quite know how to that's apply. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the decision has to be made by teachers too. So we will have panels of teachers who make that decision. And so it will be driven by the profession under clear and consistent rules. So once we've implemented that, um, I feel that that's, then we'll have much more of a comprehensive professional recognition system for teachers. At the same time, I must say, uh, if you're looking at some of the work that I'm doing at the moment, a large part of my work relates to IT because I think it's very difficult nowadays in any job not to have IT and uh, applications related to uh, information technology take a large part of your role. And all our work is dependent on a, is, is stored um, on a large database. And we first developed this system in 2005 and it was ancient and creaking by about 2013. So we've really worked hard on uh, revising that whole process and in the middle of it we've had our agency merge with another agency. Um, so that's changed the way we've, we're doing things um, quite reasonably when you have a merger. Um, but we, we're hoping that teachers have a very seamless interaction with us from an IT perspective. Yeah, the, um, uh, one of the biggest challenges I think of the IT that you face is actually it was a completely new concept that uh, in terms of like there's a learning management mm. um, system mm. in, involvement but there's also an accreditation process, there's all sorts mm. of different things. So you had oh, you know multiple different user levels trying to access different points of data within your huge database. Yeah. So um, even though everybody um, well, in New South Wales probably was a bit, oh, come on, yeah. get it together, it's not an easy thing to put together no. and make it seamless. and we were very radical back in the day when we mm. implemented, for example, the high levels of accreditation because we're, to be successful in the high levels of accreditation, you need, there are multiple sources of evidence that go towards your application for high levels of accreditation. And so you've got people entering our database and uh, putting in that evidence and you've got other people uploading evidence and in the end you get a coherent application that is reviewed by committees so, and they all have to get access to that information. So it's not a simple process for people and it's actually worked fairly well, to be honest. Uh, however, as I say to people, um, teachers who are giving us $100 every year expect to see a system that looks a little bit like their app that their bank has millions and millions of dollars um, has. So it's important that we are always looking ahead at what the latest developments are so that we're changing our IT system on a much more rapid basis than we have in the past. 
um, I definitely would be reviewing all our processes much more regularly than we did in the past so we don't end up with this sudden, oh dear, let's just mm, rebuild the whole thing. The other thing that I've learned out of that process is that always with technology moves so quickly that even when you think people aren't ready for it, by the time you've developed the system, they're usually past what you thought they weren't ready for. And a good example of that was when we first implemented um, the proficient teacher reports. So people who meet the standards. So you know, you you start teaching after you have done an approved teaching qualification. Then you meet standards of practice in the workplace. And we had a written report done by your supervisor, which was sent in to us. Now, at the time in 2005, we didn't think people were ready to upload that report. But I think we should have gone there. That's that, I think that was an, an error of judgment back then about uh, what we thought people were ready for. In 2008, um, when we did the high levels, people were ready for it. And we changed that process completely. So my learning out of that is always go ahead of what you think people are ready for because by the time you've done the development, they're there. That's right. Um, I think some people don't realise that when you're developing a system like this, it might be a two, three year yeah, process right. to develop this it one properly. Has been yeah. particularly. So Judith, I think one of the interesting things for a, a younger person in education is always finding out how people like you got to the position you you did. So can you briefly describe your pathway? Okay, well, I think when I started work, it was actually in the 80s when there was a high level of unemployment. And I did a whole range of different jobs. So I worked a lot in retail. I did various, I travelled. I did those sorts of things that, um, you know, McJobs they used to call them. I did all those McJobs. And at one stage I went and did a dickhead after I'd finished my degree. And I went teaching for uh, a little while and uh, then I went traveling. Then I came back and I was working as a teacher. I was also working in, in retail still, sort of killing myself. And um, a job came up that combined, bizarrely, combined those two jobs that I had. And at that stage in the early 90s, the youth labor market had totally collapsed. And they were looking at reinventing the whole vocational education and training system. And VET in schools became a, uh, uh, became a big policy agenda in, in the 90s. So I was, because my background was in retail, I was brought in to write some support material in a little regional office in the Department of Education to write some support material for teachers. And I went and worked in what was called the Retail Industry Training Committee. So that was sort of like a central agency for all of the training in retail. And from there, now this is how bizarre things happen. One evening, um, I remember that uh, I had a dinner party and I wanted to go home because I was preparing for this dinner party. And somebody said, oh, there's someone coming from the Board of Studies who that was the agency that developed curriculum and ran the HSC in New South Wales, coming from the Board of Studies to have a meeting about some course they're getting up and everybody was a bit dismissive of it and they said, oh, you're a teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
being the good girl I was, you know, even though I had a dinner party, <laughs> I, I stayed late and had this meeting. Anyway, they told me they were putting up this new syllabus called Industry Studies um, and thought nothing less, you know, thought nothing more of it and went home, etc. And then a couple of months later, when I'd nearly finished this particular job, they gave me a ring and they said, can you come and work at this place called the Board of Studies and write support material for um, our new course? And so I came in then to the New South Wales Board of Studies I started out writing support material and then I moved into curriculum development. Um, we expanded the, t the sorts of uh, vocational education and training courses that we ran. And it was very good experience because what I was exposed to then was the intersection of national policy, because there was national vet policy, um, state vocational education and training policy and state educa uh, school education policy. So from an early age, I was responsible for uh, working on um, policy and programs to combine all those and synthesise all those policy frameworks. Um, after that, uh, I went. I stayed in the sort of vet stream and went off to work in um, state rail, working in vet, and that was that was a very useful couple of years that I spent there. Um, and then I moved back into school education. Um, and eventually, uh, after a couple of an, a range of jobs in in the department, working primarily in policy areas, um, I got a job uh, on what was called the interim committee for New South Wales Institute of Teachers. We were a, a small group of people who had been employed to see whether or not we could establish an Institute of Teachers after a couple of government reports, and. Because my role had, I'd, I'd written a lot of curriculum by then, and I'd also been very involved in assessment as well. So a lot of workplace assessment, a lot of school-based assessment, and a lot of curriculum writing. Um, I started working on these things called the New South Wales Professional Teaching Standards, and uh, never in my wildest dreams imagining how they would end up. And uh, in fact, it's a funny, it's a funny thing. I uh, I can remember going, the, 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 the New South Wales standards had four levels that had been established in a government report. And we'd had working parties of teachers coming in, writing some of the standards. And I can remember thinking, oh, this is just not working, the structure's not working. And going home and just coming to me about a, a grid, a matrix, <clears throat> I, can still, I can still picture where I was walking when I suddenly thought, I can put this into a matrix, and now it, you can't even imagine that I, we wouldn't have thought that now. Anyway, so we put it into a matrix, and uh, a lot, a lot more work occurred, which you know, obviously I won't go into now. And we ended up with the New South Wales Standards for Teachers, and then they formed the basis of the Australian Professional Standards for Teachers. I shouldn't say they performed the basis. People in other states and territories, all states and territories, worked on the Australian Professional Standards for Teachers. So they are a national, nationally agreed set of standards. Um, and then, of course, I'd, I'd moved into a more corporate role at the Institute of Teachers, which I enjoyed. Um, however, we then had a merger, and being the smaller agency, um, they had the agency we merged with had a corporate area, and so I ended up 
being director of teacher accreditation, which combines some of my old role, um, but not not completely. Fantastic! Thank you very much for that. Um, it's quite the journey, um, but it sounds to me. Uh, the journey was very much involved with um, seeing an opportunity and sort of doing the yes and. You know what I think? I method think that of what I did is because I grew up in that time of high unemployment. Um, I thought it was good. I just used to change jobs all the time. So I now, as the age I am now, you worry about your super, you worry about your mortgage, you worry about all these things. But in your twenties, you don't worry about those things. But any women listening <laughs> worry about those things. <laughs> Interest, rate, yes, interest rates have never early. been lower. <laughs> so take the opportunity now. Don't take my advice. Uh, interest rates were very high when I was in 16, 17. But anyway, um, so yes, I did. I gambled a lot. I gambled. I didn't see it as gambling, but I, I think I just built on my work, you know, my work pattern, which was to go from one to one to one. Yeah, and you learn a lot. I mean, you learn a lot when you change organisations too. Um, so I would definitely say that was that was very useful. Yeah, a, a lot of uh, women sometimes feel that uh, to change would be to gamble too much, but change can force a lot of growth and a lot of sometimes opportunities. Sometimes you don't have a choice that. about change. Um, and I didn't at the end of the That's board of true. studies. I didn't because we had an industrial dispute about permanency, and I remember thinking I wanted to move anyway, but I wanted to choose my timing. As it was, you know, it was it was a good thing that happened. Um, and if I hadn't been forced, maybe I would have stayed in this comfortable position, which I was pretty bored with at that stage. So I'm I'm sort of glad it came up. And and I was the other thing was by that stage, and this is another important um, message for, for women. I'd had a lot. Of, I had a lot of networks. And so when we did have that industrial dispute, I had two job offers straight away. And I had a choice, you know, so, uh, and that was through my networks of people who had worked with me but worked in other organisations and were prepared to employ me. I think also at that age, when you're younger and you're, you're cheaper, it's easier, <laughs> it's harder as you get older to do those sorts of things. But at that age, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend changes, change as much as you, you know, not say you change every six months, people get suspicious then. But when you when you are starting to get bored with the job, it's it's a good thing to look for something else. Um, I suppose one last question. I was I'm a bit mindful of your time. Uh, have you faced any challenges as a woman in leadership that you could describe? And um... <laughs> yes, I face. I continue to face challenges as a woman in leadership. I think it depends on the organisation that you're working in, but there are some organisations where it has been very male dominated and the hardest thing is that you'll be cut out of decision making. And it's all right to be cut out of decision making if it's not an area of your responsibility, but I've been cut out of decision making where it is my area of responsibility. And decisions are made, poor decisions are made uh, by men who just don't have the knowledge and don't feel they need to have the knowledge. And it's annoying to me that it doesn't seem to make too much difference. But I'm hoping that that is not the sort of future that other women face. However, I think you've got to be prepared to deal with it because sometimes, not universally, but sometimes men and women do work 
very differently. And I think that um, uh, you will get men who just have a sort of slightly born to rule mentality and they think that they can make the decisions. Whereas women tend to, and I'm making gross generalisations here, but women do tend to um, uh, want to make sure that they have all the detail. So you can get very bogged down in the detail and you also take responsibility for things that sometimes the men don't take responsibility for. So you're really busy because you're taking responsibility for all these things or they're up there you know, making decisions about stuff that they think they've got knowledge of and in fact they don't necessarily have it. So I think the hardest thing I deal with is just being cut out of decision making and not treated with the respect that I should be treated with. Um, given the work that my team and I, not just me, but my team and I have actually developed and implemented. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, I um, something Someone said something to me fairly recently, actually, that I, when I work, I talk about my team and my work together. And uh, he said men don't talk that way. They talk more about uh, what they have achieved. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting thing. Obviously, it's a generalisation again. Um, but it is a different pattern of uh, working that's not quite to the yeah. rule of how men that's do the work. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes. I think, I think the most important message is don't get discouraged. When, pardon me, when you are sidelined, um, there's a couple of things you need to remember. You you need to be able to take constructive criticism. So you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect, and I you know I have to take constructive criticism. But I also have to recognise when I'm being treated unfairly. So there's a balance between accepting constructive criticism of my work and also being able to then say, ah, but this is not constructive criticism. This is actually me being treated unfairly. Um, and I think, what do you do about that? You've just got to grit your teeth on occasions. You've got to grit your teeth and continue working in the way that you're working and people will respect you. I mean, especially sometimes people can get caught up in internal issues within your organisation. Keep your external networks, um, uh, keep effective communications going with your external networks. And then you'll find that you gain, you, you keep respect from all the people that you're actually needing to complete your work anyway. So you find ways around difficult uh, management structures. And, and the other thing you've got to do is make sure that you don't become bitter and twisted and that you don't make your work colleagues um, unhappy because people spend a lot of time and people, you know, in my team have packed up kids, left a long way away from work. They've really, you know, it's dealt with difficult issues and come to work. You want to make sure that everybody's reasonably happy with their day, not so we're singing and dancing in the corridors, but that it's not a miserable place to come to work. So even though um, I might be dealing with some difficult issues, I think it's really important that that doesn't, doesn't affect other people in the team and that they see that everything is fairly positive and that young women, for example, can uh, have uh, careers and families and um, 
and 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 it's not right to be treated sometimes and then it's sometimes you just got to be honest and say yeah no this is not reasonable we're not being treated in a reasonable way so just be honest about it i'm not one of those people that thinks that you should stay corporate above everything because in the end that's just um being dishonest you've actually got to say no this is unfair there's not much we can do about it but i think we can recognize that this is unfair Good advice. Uh, One of the reasons we're doing a women in leadership series of these podcasts is uh, we're trying to look at the issue of uh, most of the teaching workforce is uh, female uh, and yet the leadership is inversely the other ratio is mostly male. Uh, So it's just trying to have a think about it. We're obviously not saying that um, all male teachers or all male leaders are bad or anything like that. No, 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 yeah. that's, that's not the case. There is some element of confidence, I think, that, I've, uh, that I can see in male leaders that sometimes women don't have. And it's this, it, it's, I don't know if it'll last forever, to be honest. I suspect some of these uh, people who have confidence without having knowledge, I can't see that happening, that, uh, I can't see that lasting forever. In in the public sector, I can only speak from the public sector perspective. Yeah, I can I can see that more evidence based leadership is going to be the trend for the future. And so, if that's the case, women have a much um, uh, you know a much better role really to break down some of those barriers that exist at the moment. Yeah, because the traditional stereotype in Australia is that women are, or young girls are taught to be mm-hmm. nice, to be competent, That's to right. be quiet. Yeah. Um, That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So and, men, and then yeah. as a woman, you've got, and so if you speak up, that's because you're, um, if you say, look, this isn't reasonable, um, all of a sudden you're an unreasonable person. So if you calmly say, yes. look, <laughs> this is really not reasonable at the moment, you know, I've worked on this for... Uh, I was up till two o'clock doing this last night and you haven't even asked me my view about this. Well, I'm suddenly being unreasonable. (laughs) Whereas what I'm supposed to do is just quietly sit there and say, ah, yes, no, you're right. You're the person in power. I will just accept what you say. That's ridiculous. Um, I want to thank you for your honesty on that uh, because there are a lot of uh, women in, you know, the early 30s, probably getting into 45, that sort of region who are thinking, well, what can I do? And have probably faced those issues and thought maybe that was them alone or it was something personal rather than um, just the reality of the situation that they might need to face and work mm-hmm. through. So um, thank you very much. Okay. And, I mean, I don't have the answers. If I had the answers, <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't have no, the situation expect- that we have at the moment. But anyway... <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't think we're expecting any one person to have the answer. That's why we're doing a series of these and we'll be asking a lot of people their point of views on this. So, um, no, thank you. Thank you very much. There's just I was just thinking through some of the advice that I'd given. One of the things is I think that women do tend to take too much on and spend their lives um, working, working, working and not delegating. And I think that that's another bit of advice I would give to younger women. Don't delegate so everybody thinks, what on earth does this person do? But do make sure that you do delegate and you are building the skills and knowledge of your own team. I think that's a trap you can fall into. Take, and I do think, take opportunities for further training. So when they're offered to you, take them up. 
um, don't say I'm too busy, which I've done in the past, and men don't say that. They don't say I'm too busy. <laughs> they say I'll take that. Thanks very much. And uh, so yeah, there's a there's a few things like that that I would definitely do differently and give yourself an opportunity to sit back and actually think strategically about the role that you're undertaking at the moment. And sometimes when you're bogged down in the minutiae of work, you're not able to do that. And you can be criticised for that and quite rightly criticised for it. Um, yeah, so I think that's just have confidence in your own ability too. Don't let, I think when you're subject to quite a bit of criticism, um, you can doubt yourself. And so it's important that in your networks you find people who are sensible, who you trust, and you can test your situation with them. So if you think, mm, you know, they keep saying that to me, maybe it's right when it probably isn't right, go and find some sensible people and thrash it out with them, talk to them about it, and then, you know, you're able to look at things in a um, calm light, calm Yeah, that is good advice. Uh, in fact, sensible people, I like that term because you don't want somebody who's just going to confirm what you said. No, you want somebody who's going right. to look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm fortunate that I have a number of people like that. So that's very useful. <laughs> well, brilliant. Thank you very much, Judith, for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks, Amy. I'd like to thank Judith Page and the New South Wales Education Standards Authority for a really insightful and honest interview today. Educationally Sound is hosted by the Teacher Learning Network. For more information, go to www.tln.org.au. You can contact us via email at podcasts at tln.org.au or you can find us on Facebook. Have you ever been watching a film depicting a teacher and thought, wait, I'd never do that in a classroom? Well, we have the podcast for you. Rated E for Educational examines films like Kindergarten Cop, School of Rock, Dangerous Minds, and many more, looking at the pedagogical stylings as depicted in film. Download Rated E for Educational today from any good podcast supplier. TLN is co-sponsored by the Australian Education Union, Victorian Branch, and the Independent Education Union, Victoria, Tasmanian Branch.